Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and all major podcast providers. So if you can't catch the show live, you can download it or simply use our free podcast player, which is available on our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to connect with us, please post a question on our wall on Facebook or send me a tweet at June Stoyer on Twitter. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by MyMumble.com, one of the leading voice chat service providers with locations all over the world. MyMumble offers free five-seat voice chat service for life, as well as higher capacity plans for any group that requires a secure environment for confidential communication. Listeners of The Organic View can receive 15% off on monthly recurring power servers by using the coupon code ORGVIEW. For more promotional offers, please visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. Also, don't forget to check out our contest section on our website for your chance to win one of our cool prizes. For more information, please visit www.theorganicview.com forward slash contests. If you talk to random strangers and ask them to describe what being obese means, you will receive a myriad of answers. However, if you surf the web and peruse celebrity photos, most of the time you'll find articles labeling someone as obese, even if it happens to be a woman who's pregnant. This actually happened earlier this year to Kelly Clarkson, who just gave birth to her first child. How obsessed is our society with weight? On today's show, I have the pleasure of welcoming Professor Harriet Brown, author of the best-selling book, Body of Truth, How Science, History, and Culture Drive Our Obsession with Weight and What We Can Do About It. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Harriet Brown. Good afternoon, Harriet, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, June. Harriet, I really enjoyed this book. It addressed so many different issues, and more importantly, it addressed the money machine that's behind it, which we'll get to in a minute. But before we begin, can you please tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what prompted you to write the book? Sure. I have been a writer, journalist, magazine editor for all of my career, pretty much. I do a lot of writing about health, especially mental health, but the last 10 years or so, I've been researching and writing a lot about food and eating and eating disorders and body image, some of which was prompted by my own history with struggling with body image and weight, um, and some of which was prompted by the fact that I have a daughter who struggled with an eating disorder for a while. So that all kind of pushed that to the front of my mind and, and also, I think, sensitized me to the idea that these are subjects that we, that like, we are immersed in all the time. We don't even realize what we're thinking and how other issues sort of affect how we think and feel about these things, but they're very important to us. So I set out to write the book to sort of put out there to people some of the things I had learned in delving into the research that surprised me that I that go counter to the messages that we get most of the time um, and so that people can, you know, make up their own minds, basically, make their own choices about how they want to incorporate these issues, these ideas, you know, how they want to think about health and physicality for themselves. You had a number of reviews on Amazon, and I have to say they were all fantastic, very supportive of your work, and they were reviews that really went into depth as far as how the book 
helped the individual person, what they got out of it, so on and so forth. However, there was one comment that I thought was interesting. There was a comment in which the individual said, all this book is really saying that it's the only way to lose weight. What do you have to say in response to this? Well, what I would say is that uh, the person who left that comment definitely did not read the book, uh, which has nothing to do with weight loss. Um, it's certainly not a diet book. In fact, the book looks at some of the things that we are told over and over again about dieting, about weight loss, about the need to lose weight, um, and kind of deconstructs them, you know, looks at what research supports those ideas or doesn't, um, what do we actually know about the relationship between weight and health, and what are we just assuming. And ultimately, I hope that readers can take this information and make up their own minds about, um, you know, how to go forward in terms of their own promoting their own positive health. Let's talk about the scientific definition of overweight. What exactly is the definition? That is a great question. Um, you're classified as overweight if your BMI, which is your body mass index, falls somewhere between 25 and 29.9. So what the BMI, in case listeners don't know what it is, it's a simple ratio between your height and your weight. Um, it doesn't tell you anything about how much lean muscle mass you have or how much body fat you have. or um, It tells you nothing except, you know, this is the relationship between this height and this weight. And it has become, it, it's, an, it's not a new measure. It was invented in the 1830s by a mathematician who specifically said, you know, I'm using this to look at populations and it should never be applied to an individual person or used as a way to tell us something about someone's health, which, of course, is exactly how it is used today. So classifications of overweight and obesity are now made going by the BMI chart, um, which is, you know, we could argue about how accurate it is, but we know that it's especially inaccurate for certain classes of people. Um, if you're very short, for example, the, the purport, you know, the ratio between height and weight will be skewed. It's, it's, it's off for people who are African American. It's off for athletes who have a, a lot of muscles, which, of course, weigh more than fat. So, but it is now used, like, you know, if you go to your doctor and you're, you are diagnosed with obesity, what that means is your BMI is over 30. If you're diagnosed with overweight, your BMI is over 25. How long has society been consumed with weight? <laughs> what a good question. Really, it's been in the last, I would say, 125 years. I mean, it's definitely been something that Greek philosophers wrote about it. You know, Aristotle wrote about moderation. But we have never been as obsessed with this subject as we have, especially in the last 30 to 40 years. And the, the sort of cultural pressure to lose weight, to be thin, really got started in the 1880s to, to uh, 1900. And that was a time when there was a lot of cultural change happening. You know, industrialization was going on. Food was suddenly more, more available. You know, for most of human history, our problem was how to get enough to eat, not having too much to eat. Um, and suddenly in, around the 1880s, you know, food got cheaper. Um, it also started to be processed, so it started to lose some of its nutritional value. And there was a, a crop of immigrants, you know, people coming into this country from Eastern Europe that were 
physically very different from the people who had already been here. They were, you know, they tended to be shorter, they tended to be stockier, which I, one of the things I find really interesting is that part of the way thinness has acquired its elite status was those people who were already here wanted to differentiate themselves from these newer, stockier immigrants. So, you know, for lots and lots of different reasons, it began to be much better to be thin and considered much lower class to be larger. That's really interesting, especially when you think about the different parts of the world where food is not abundant and the struggles that we've had as a society to produce enough food. Mm -hmm. If you think about the people that journeyed here from Europe, especially, for example, in Italy, where there was widespread famine. And when they settled here in America, these immigrants felt that to eat well was to be well. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And when, especially when you come from any kind of history of famine and, you know, which has been mostly our story, you know, throughout human history. So, you know, because look at the eight, early 1800s, um, and and before, look at the Middle Ages, you know, to be plump was to be higher class. You know, it was a sign of affluence. It was a sign that you had enough money to eat enough to put a little meat on your bones. At what age do children absorb information about weight? Do you know? I couldn't give you an exact age, but I can tell you that people have been studying this exact thing, and they have found very strong preferences in kids' two years old at this point. I mean, I would say, especially given the fact that we are so media saturated now and that, you know, infants and toddlers are using smartphones and they're online and they're watching TV and they're, you know, exposed to so many messages um, and that these messages they're exposed to are so relentless, it's not really surprising that when they look at two- and three-year-olds, you know, those kids will say things like, I don't want to be the fat one, you know, or when they're um, given a row of kids with various differences, you know, maybe there's a kid in a wheelchair and there's a fat kid and there's a, a kid with glasses and there's, you know, whatever, invariably the one that is the least popular will be the fat kid. They know it, you know, they get it on a very fundamental level. They, they've got the score and they know that, are we live in a culture that really stigmatizes um, obesity, fat, overweight, whatever you want to call it, um, and they take in those lessons really early, which is really scary because, you know, as adults, hopefully we can, it's hard enough for us to sort of use our intelligence and what we know to counter some of the stigma that's out there, but, you know, kids don't have that ability. They just they're like little sponges. They absorb what we tell them and what we show them, and they're definitely absorbing it. Does confidence in yourself really make a difference? And how can you undo and re-imprint negative patterns of behavior that was taught to us as children when it comes to our weight? Well, self-confidence is one of those sort of funny, you know, slippery concepts, really. I mean, I don't even know exactly what it means. I know that there's been some really interesting psychological research on self-esteem that shows that, like, basically each of us has a kind of baseline, you know, of level of self-esteem. Um, 
you know, maybe you think very well of yourself, maybe you're insecure. What's interesting about that is that it does not correlate with your success in life. So lots and lots of people with very low self-esteem can do very well in life. And the reverse is also true, and that, you know, accomplishing things doesn't ever seem to raise that. So, you know, self-confidence, I'm not sure what it is really, but um, I guess the ability to to move through the world and feel good about it. But what what I what's good news about that is that you don't necessarily need self-confidence, you know, to move through the world successfully. So that's sort of one piece of it. The other question you asked is a whopper, right? Like, how do we reprogram ourselves um, when we are raised in this culture that drums this message home so relentlessly? And I think the answer is it's a long process. I know it's a process. I've been involved in for many years at this point, and I would not say that I'm like perfectly self-confident or have totally, you know, rejected the uh, the dominant paradigm around weight. But I will say that I've made a lot of progress and that I've come a long way. I think that's maybe the best individual people can do in a culture like this. So I think that you know, you have to work on yourself, and we can talk more about that. But also, we have to work to change the culture. Um, which is, there are definitely people beginning to work on that. I just think it's going to be a longer process, you know, because these ideas are so deeply entrenched and there's so much money behind them. Um, you know, the whole advertising industry is based around the idea of making people feel bad about themselves so they can sell you something. That's not something that's going to go away or change really anytime soon. So we have to find ways to sort of combat that to sidestep it and that's that's challenging for sure it certainly is i know a number of people that i've met throughout the years who were thin but as far as their health they had so many different health issues whether they had cholesterol issues high blood pressure low blood pressure all sorts of different problems and ideally someone who's very heavy set would look at this person and think, oh, well, you know, their life must be perfect. But the reality is, is that there's a lot more to it than just your physical weight. It's oh, about yeah. your your health, wellness, how you take care of your body. Right. And that's one of the, that's one of the big messages I, I hoped that this book would get across is that, you know, we have this knee jerk assumption that we make that thin is healthy and fat is unhealthy. And I really, really, really would like to see us, you know, decoupling those ideas because that's simply not true. I mean, there are thin people who are very healthy. There are thin people who are not so healthy. There are fat people who are very healthy and not so healthy and everything in between. And I think what it boils down to is it's really more about, as you say, how you treat your body, your behaviors, what you do, not so much what you are or what you look like or how much you weigh. But, you know, do you get exercise? Do you eat nutritiously? You know, do you do you get enough sleep? Do you move your body in ways that feel good? You know, there's many components to health, like you say, that have zero to do with the number on the scale. And yet that is, like, like we were talking about earlier, you know, you, you get diagnosed with obesity by simply having a certain ratio of height to weight it all gets reduced to that one number, and that's really a shame because it's a lot, lot, lot more complicated than that. I remember many years ago 
I had a personal trainer who taught me some very valuable lessons about working out, weight training, all sorts of different things during the time that I hired him. And the most important lesson that I learned was to treat your body like a car. Mm. A car can't run unless you have oil and gas and the necessary fluids. And in the same token, you might have a great exterior, but if the interior is rotted, you're only going to go so far. So it was a very interesting way to put things into perspective as far as moving forward and maintaining a healthy lifestyle. So I I just wanted to share that. Yeah, you know, it it always reminds me of this um, story. It's like an old Jewish folktale or joke kind of you know, that about a miser and his dog, and, you know, the, the miser doesn't like to spend money, so every day he feeds the dog a little less, a little less, and eventually the dog gets sick and dies. And he says, oh, you know what, just when I had totally trained him to live on nothing at all, he has to go and die. And that's such an apocryphal story to me because it's almost like on some level we all think, you know, if we can only eat as little as possible and, you know, put as little as possible into our bodies, that's the best thing. And as you say, it's really not. I love that metaphor of treat your body like a car because <laughs> it needs fuel and it needs liquids and it needs, you know, it needs rest. It needs all sorts of things. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I just found that if you really think about that analogy, it will help you as far as any goals you're looking to achieve, especially when it comes to maintaining a healthy regimen. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't have too much gas, but you can't drive on fumes. <laughs> no, you, you need you, you need the proper balance. And every so often, you need a checkup, you know, in the form of a tune-up. But uh, in any event, <laughs> it, it's quite an interesting analogy. My next question is, just how big is the dieting industry? <laughs> it's huge. Uh, it's uh, I think this year it was more than $60 billion. Um, and it is growing rapidly, especially if you take into account um, the sort of newer elements of it, which would be like bariatric surgery and everything that you know gets wrapped up into that. So there is a lot of money at stake, a lot of money at stake. And it's fascinating to me because, fascinating in a disturbing way, because I think anyone who has dieted more than once in their life, which is probably most of us, um, knows that diets really don't work in the long run. You know, that they are, it's not that hard for most people to lose some weight in the short term, but keeping it off is you know, very, very difficult. And so it's like they have a built-in audience, but that audience is predicated on the fact that, you know, the products they sell, dieting products, do not do what they are supposed to do. And yet we go back over and over again spending our money um, and often damaging our health, you know, in this quest to be thin, to lose weight, to keep it off. So, yeah, it's a big, big business. There's lots of money involved. There's lots of big corporations involved, and it's it's something that needs, I think, a little more attention. Because I think a lot of us feel like, well, dieting, okay, maybe it's hard to keep the weight off, but it's probably my fault if I don't keep the weight off. And, you know, it, it can't hurt me, right? I mean, even if I'm, I don't keep the weight off, it's still it's probably good for me. And the reality is actually the opposite, that dieting 
not only doesn't make you thinner or healthier, but it can actively damage your health. There's a lot wrapped up into that, too. I couldn't agree more. I remember as a teenager buying Dexatrim uh-huh. because there was so much pressure. I was involved with different sports and whatnot, and the the coaches would have us work out all the time, but the thing is is that there was so much pressure to be thin. Mm-hmm. And I remember taking Dexatrim when I, when I woke up and then another pill before a game, and that is just so incredibly bad for your heart. Yeah. Yeah, you know, lots of people have died from taking supplements and medications that are supposed to, you know, fen-fen, remember that? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and but even the ones that aren't so medically bad, I mean, I, I grew up, I never did Dexatrim, but do you remember the AIDS diet, the AYDS? Oh, yes. Yeah, like popping those the little, little caramels. Right. Yeah, the little, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. All kinds of crazy things that we did and, um, you know. When, in, you know, I think back, I could have been teaching myself to eat well. I could have been, you know, learning to love exercise, which I did come to much later in life. I could have been uh, spending my time and energy on much more important things. I remember a period where I I remember taking aspirin and taking diet fuel. And I, at the time, I was taking private lessons for kickboxing. And my instructor, who was really just amazing, he said to me, go home and just rest. He said, you're going to have a heart attack if you try to work out doing what you just did. Mm -hmm. And I remember another situation where I was, you know, I didn't listen to him. So, of course, I'm taking this stuff and I pass out of my doctor's office. My doctor basically read me the riot act. And he really just came down hard on me. He said, what are you trying to do, kill yourself? And at the time, I was in fabulous shape. It's just that the the last couple of extra pounds, I was so eager to take off. And when you're young and you don't realize what you're doing to your body because society is pushing this image on you, it's amazing what we do to ourselves. Well, and even the concept of those last few pounds, I mean, it sounds like your body had gotten to a place where, you know, as you say, you were in excellent shape, you felt good, you were athletic, you know, and yet you thought there were a few more pounds that needed to go, you know, and so I think it's important to look at where those ideas come from because if we actually listen to our bodies, you know, they tend to settle in places that feel good, you know, and where they work well and where they do what you need them to do, and I think that should be the measure of, oh, I'm healthy, I'm fit, rather than, oh, those last few pounds. But we all feel that way, you know, at some point or another. It's impossible not to in this culture. You go into quite a bit of detail about the miracle cures, and then you venture to a place where I'm so happy that you did, and you talk about the infamous Dr. Oz. Mm. What did you discover? Well, I was really interested to, first of all, I never watched his show, so I actually did watch it for this, and, you know, I was surprised and disappointed to see him hawking is the only word you can really use, you know, hawking these totally unproven diet cures, putting that in quotes, and so he's a well-respected, you know, doctor. He He's a, a gifted surgeon and has done a lot of good, So, but he was called up before a Senate subcommittee, and Senator McCaskill from Missouri basically confronted him about this and said, 
you're a good doctor, you, you're well-trained, you know these things don't work. You know it, and yet you go on the air and you sell them to people and you promote them and you tell people that they work. You know, this is a huge cognitive dissonance. How can you do that? And I was totally floored by his answer to her, which was, well, yes, I know they don't work, but I feel like it's important to give people hope. And I was floored by that because if you really think about it, what he is saying is it's so important to us to be thin that even a false hope of becoming thin is better than saying to people, um, sorry, you know, your body is just meant to be 10 pounds heavier or whatever, and you're not going to be thin. Like that is considered to be such a devastating thing that it's better to go on the air and lie and destroy your reputation. And I, that was such, so sad to me on so many levels. But it's not surprising. No, it's not surprising because that is, in fact, the, where we put value in this culture, right? I mean, it's better to be thin. I mean, every time they do those studies where they ask people, would you rather be blind than be fat? You know, I mean, People would rather be almost anything. They'd rather lose 10 years of their lives than be fat. They'd rather lose a limb, get divorced, be depressed. You know, anything is better than being fat in this culture. And that, too, is so sad to me, really sad. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned hope. I remember in graduate school learning about Max Factor, and when he was asked about why he got into the cosmetic industry, his response was he gives women hope. And it's one thing to sell a lipstick, mm-hmm. but it's another to actually give people information about a product that could be, in fact, detrimental to their health. And that is, unfortunately, the typical snake oil salesman routine that we've seen for how many years? Right. Yeah, and I would agree. It's a little, you know, lipstick is a different concept than uh, Fen Fen for sure, but you know, at, at the heart, they they both are based on the same thing, which is that you're not okay the way you are, and you have to have hope of being better, whatever better means to you, prettier, thinner, you know, more attractive, whatever. Um, and I think that's 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 kind of the way our culture is organized. You know, we're a culture of self-improvement, right? We always think we should be better and stronger and, you know, lift ourselves up by our bootstraps, you know, metaphorically as well as physically. So, um, but, you know, that has a price and there's a dark side to it. And that's exactly what you're talking about. There's a show called Botched, and I'm not a big fan of reality shows at all. In fact, I hardly ever watch TV, but this is a show that I find interesting, especially the lengths that some people will go to in order to be what they view to be perfect. And it really is horrible to see what people subject themselves to. I don't know that show, but I'm guessing from the title that it's about plastic surgery. Yeah. Well, it's the quest to be perfect. It's the quest to be thin. It's the quest to be Mm -hmm. something that is in that person's mind as far as what perfection consists of. And it's it's quite interesting when you take a look at society as a whole and start to analyze where these patterns of behavior are coming from and who actually stands to profit from that perception. Right. So that's one of that's one of the great things that I that I got out of the book Body of Truth and, and once again it's you really touched upon so many different areas 
it, I, it, I'm glad somebody said it. Well, it's, it, it needs to be said, um, and it's hardly news, right? I mean, we've known this for a long time, but um, wow. I don't know where we got the idea that we're supposed to be perfect. I mean, I really don't know where that came from. Human beings, by definition, are imperfect, and perfection would be so boring, really. <laughs> I mean, well, difference is what makes us human and interesting, I think. I couldn't agree more. And which brings me, actually, this brings me to the next subject, which is a campaign that you address, and you actually talk about how it's more damaging than helpful, and that's Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign. What are your thoughts about this campaign? Um, My thoughts about it are that I think the First Lady has some incredibly wonderful ideas for promoting health around for kids and adults, you know, everything from um, solving the problem of food deserts to encouraging joyful movement and, you know, and making nutrition fun and all that. That's all great stuff, you know, bringing back recess, all that stuff. My problem with it, and it's not just my problem, there's a, a lot of people who have this problem with it, is that it's all framed around obesity. It's all framed around, um, as she says, solving the problem of childhood obesity within a generation. And so, again, it's focusing on weight rather than health. Um, And, you know, you might say, well, why is that a problem? I mean, at least there's some good ideas there. And I think it's a problem because, for a lot of reasons, but the main one being, um, you know, people come in different shapes and sizes. And forget about adults. Not every kid is going to have the same body type and style. And basically what you're doing is saying, you know, you're only acceptable, you're only healthy, you're only okay if you fit into this ideal or if you aspire to this ideal. And as we know, as we've been talking about and, and haven't even touched on, the, the lengths that people go to, to to meet those ideals are often very unhealthy. And so you're taking this positive message, but you're, you're turning it in, in a negative way. Um, and I think the other big problem with it is that I know this because I've talked to kids and I've talked to teens about it, Kids who are heavier than the norm feel like the message is, you're bad. We want to get rid of you. And I really don't think that's what the First Lady intends. I I hope that's not what she intends. But that is how people experience it. There's so much stigma around um, fat in this culture that, you know, when you say end childhood obesity, and if you're a kid who either feels obese or is obese, the message is, we're going to get rid of you, basically. And, and of course, the flip side of that is, and you're only okay if you're thinner. And so, you know, I think we would all be so much better off if we could just separate these ideas, put the, put the issues of weight aside. Frankly, it's much more complicated, the relationship between weight and health, than we think it is. So let's just put that aside and focus on the things that, we know improve our health because we do know a lot about that. Um, And and we know how to, you know, move more and eat better and all of the things that um, do make us healthier. So I would love to see the message shift to just focusing on those things and just dropping the weight stuff, at least for now. What advice do you have for parents who do want to promote well-being with their children? Um. 
I would recommend to them a couple of things. Um, one is, you know, as we've been talking about, focus on health, not weight. Um, don't comment about your kids' weights. You know, there's a there's a, a, a sort of new uh, move around right now. A couple of researchers who are hammering on this idea that parents don't know that their kids are overweight or obese, and they must know. And it's ridiculous. I mean, if you weigh more than, you know, most of your peers, whether you're a kid, whether you're eight years old or 28, you know it. You know it. You're told it all the time. You see it. You you see it reflected around you in media. Um, so you know the idea that people don't know that they're heavier is ridiculous. Um, so I think that it's really never helpful to comment on a kid's weight, to talk about it, to frame a conversation around it. But what is helpful as a parent is, again, to promote healthy things, to model good relationship with food and exercise, to not comment about your own weight. I know this is something I was guilty of when my girls were young. I I never said anything about their bodies. I was very conscious of that. But I didn't realize that, you know, talking smack about my own body was just as bad because they were there and they could hear it and they internalized that too. So I think modeling, you know, acceptance and joy and health um, on all levels is a great thing for parents to do. And if you're a parent and you're kind of wrestling with some of this stuff, I would highly recommend the work of a therapist named Ellen Satter. S-A-T-T-E-R. She's written a number of books on uh, kids and food and weight and parents and the whole sort of feeding relationship between parents and kids. And I think there's a lot, a lot of wisdom there. And um, I know I've learned a lot from those books myself. And you quote her quite a bit. And in one section, she defines normal eating. Mm. Could you share that with our listeners? I don't have the definition in front of me, but what I love about it is that she actually does describe normal eating um, because it's really hard in this culture to know what's normal, right? I mean, (laughs) most of us think that, and I teach at a university and I talk to my students about these things, and they say, I don't know what's normal eating. And um, Satter talks about, you know, coming to the table hungry, eating till you're full, not just stopping because you think you should. you know, being in touch with your, your your body's true messages, whether it's I really, really craving a salad today or, you know, I really want a cookie today and that's okay. Um, but but it's, it's some people would describe what she's talking about as um, competent eating or intuitive eating, but what it basically means is being more in touch with your body's cues of hunger and fullness and paying attention to them and honoring them and saying, okay, my body is telling me what it needs today and, and what it wants, and, and that's okay. I'm going to listen to that. Harriet, what would you like our listeners to take away from the book Body of Truth? Um, I, I would like people to, to be able to let up on themselves a little bit. You know, I think we're so hard on ourselves when it comes to our bodies, body size and shape and, you know, I was bad, I ate a cookie, I was good, I ate nothing but lettuce. I would love for people to be able to relax because when you're so tense and judgmental about everything you do, when you're so self-critical and when you hate your body or, you know, wish it was very different, 
those things do not promote good health. Um, they certainly are don't feel good. You know, it's not a fun way to live. And I think it's totally unnecessary. If you can relax and pay attention to your body's signals and understand that, you know, the process of shifting gears in this culture is a slow one. It took me years to realize that I actually love exercise, certain kinds of exercise anyway, because I was so conditioned to think of it as a punishment, you know, or as something I had to do to burn off calories. Um, but eventually I was able to realize, oh, my God, I love riding my bike. <laughs> I love it so much. It makes me happy. It doesn't make me thinner. You know, it could make me thinner or maybe it wouldn't, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that I love it and it's good for me. I think if we can be kinder to ourselves and other people and say, you know what, people come in different shapes and sizes um, and that's okay um, and that I am going to be kinder to myself and not walk around hating myself, you know, I think that would be a huge improvement in quality of life for so many of us. I think it's great that you just shared that because my yoga instructor is constantly saying, if this is the only thing that you've done today for yourself, just know that it's an act of loving yourself. And I think that's fantastic. I think it's such a great message to get across to people and for people to remember that when you do good things for your body that make you feel good and are also good for your body, making those conscious choices really does make a difference on the impact of your health or how they impact your health, rather. It really so, does. Yeah. It's, once again, Body of Truth is an excellent book, very well written. Harriet, thank you so much for being on the show today. Could you share with our listeners the information about your website and how they can connect with you on social media? Sure. Uh, my website is just HarrietBrown.com, um, and you can find me on Twitter, at Harriet Brown, very simple, um, and LinkedIn, and you know I'm I'm pretty easy to find, and my contact info is all on my website too. So I love to hear from readers, and I I love to to interact. So please feel free to drop me a line. And you also have a couple of other books. Could you share those titles with our listeners? Sure. Um, the book I did before this was called Brave Girl Eating: A Family's Struggle with Anorexia, and it it's a work of science journalism and a memoir about our daughter's struggle with anorexia and what we learned in helping her uh, recover from it. Um, I wrote a book on early childhood education called The Goodbye Window. Um, and I've done a couple of anthologies. One of them is about food and eating, and it's called Feed Me. And it's, um, you know, essays from lots of different writers on their own personal relationship with food and eating and body image. That's really quite, I, I found it quite enlightening to it also helped me realize, like, eh, I'm not the only person with these issues, so, which I think is always comforting. It's interesting. When you do the type of work that you do, how cathartic it is, and how it really does make a difference in other people's lives as you learn from your readers about how your work has impacted their health and helped them to become better people and happier people at that. Yes. Well put. Harriet, thank you so much for being on the show. It has been a pleasure, and I sincerely hope that you come back. If you if you have a follow-up to Body of Truth, or if you'd just like to talk about the book again, I think we could have literally another dozen interviews just on this subject. There's so many people that have questions, that have things that they want to talk about. There's so much need for education, and once again, your book is fantastic, and 
something that I think every man, woman, and child should read. Because it's not just geared towards women. It's really addressing issues that adults and children have. Thank you so much for having me on. I think these conversations are important. Whatever you believe and whatever you think and wherever you are in your journey, I think it's so important to talk about this stuff. So thanks for uh, having a platform that lets people do that. You're very welcome. And folks, please check out the companion article, which will be available on theorganicview.com. Thank you for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon, folks.